Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In this episode, you'll meet Chuck Rowland. Chuck was one of five men who gathered in a Los Angeles apartment on November 11th, 1950, to found the Mattachine Society, a gay rights organization. Mattachine wasn't the first gay rights group in the U.S. It was a very short-lived organization called the Society for Human Rights, which was founded in Chicago in 1924. But the Mattachine Society lasted. And very quickly, chapters spread along the West Coast and across the country. Just a quick fun fact about one of the other five guys. In the early days of Mattachine, he went by the initial R. Most people who had anything to do with the gay rights movement back then used pseudonyms. His real name was Rudy Gernreich. He was an Austrian Jewish refugee, and in the 1960s, he became famous for designing the topless bathing suit, better known as the Monokini. Just Google it, but not at work. So back to Chuck Rowland. Chuck served in the army during World War II and came home full of idealism and determined to change the world. He went right to work for a veterans organization that promoted racial equality and women's rights, setting up new chapters across the entire Midwest. Then he joined the Communist Party because he thought that the communists knew how to get things done. But it was fighting for the rights of gay people that really captured Chuck's passion. To Chuck, it didn't matter how bad things were for gay people in the early 1950s. Like a lot of the early gay and lesbian activists I met, Chuck had this internal compass that told him he was right and the rest of the world was wrong. I wish I'd had that compass when I was a young man. Chuck had a vision for a national civil rights movement and wasn't going to let the police, the government, or the church get in the way. What he hadn't counted on were the gay people who would get in his way. I met Chuck at his small one-bedroom apartment where he lived in Hollywood, California, just down the block from Grauman's Chinese Theater. He was two days shy of his 72nd birthday, but he seemed so much younger. I think it was just his energy more than anything. As I step into Chuck's front hall, I notice a portrait of Dr. Evelyn Hooker hanging on the wall. That's the psychologist who did the first study comparing gay men to straight men. You can hear Dr. Hooker's story in an earlier episode. She proved that gay people were no crazier than straight people. Chuck explains that he was one of the 30 gay men in Dr. Hooker's study. I just met Dr. Hooker two days before when I interviewed her in Santa Monica. I had no idea they knew each other, but I should have guessed because Dr. Hooker told me she'd been a guest speaker at Mattachine meetings. So Chuck takes a seat on his living room sofa. I sit across from him in an easy chair and set my tape recorder on his glass coffee table. I clip the mic to his blue button-down shirt and press record. 
Interview with Chuck Rowland, Tuesday, August 22, 1989. Location is Los Angeles, California. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one. Unlike so many people, I know so many people who had guilt feelings. I never had any fucking guilt feelings. I knew I was gay probably when I, by the time I was, certainly by the time I was nine. At 10, I fell in love with my, for the first time, with this beautiful boy. Uh, this, is, this was no puppy love affair. I mean, uh, I would have, uh, I would have, I would have killed or died for that boy. Uh, and I knew it was the real thing without, I, I knew it was in love, I was in love. And I knew, of course, that this was, was strange. Uh, but it was, it was so clear to me. I knew I wasn't crazy. That never crossed my mind. My dad was a pharmacist and his drugstore, I grew up in the drugstore, his drugstore had the only newsstand in town. A little uh, a rural village called Gary, South Dakota, mm -hmm. and population 535 at that time. My father, being a pharmacist, was one of the leading citizens of the community. Uh, so you, you were saying you were grateful that he had a newspaper. That, I'm sorry, that he, he had the only newsstand in town, and uh, uh, we got. And he didn't want to put it out in front because it was too daring. But he got copies of Sexology. I don't know. If, I think that may, maybe it's still in print. I don't know. So of course I immediately snatched a copy and took it out to the backyard of our house. So I remember this very distinctly. I was lying. I was on my stomach in the shade in the backyard reading sexology and uh, there was a whole special section on homosexuality. And he explained that, uh, that if one were homosexual he, did, he shouldn't feel strange or odd or anything, uh, that there were millions of us and uh, that uh, there was nothing wrong with it perfectly marvelous. As soon as I read that there were millions of us, I said to myself, well, it's perfectly obvious that what we have to do is organize, and we will have to, now I'm about nine years old at this time, we have to organize, and why don't we uh, identify with other minorities, such as the blacks and Jews, and I'd never known a black, but I did know one Jew <laughs> in our town, and uh, obviously has to be a, an organization of, of other minorities and we would wield tremendous, tremendous uh, strength. I don't think that there is any, any thinking gay person who hadn't at some time, back in the 20s, back in the 30s, has said maybe at a bar one night when feeling a little happy, you know, we should have an organization. We should get together and, and have a gay organization. And usually you'd be laughed out of the place. People would say, oh, you'd never get a bunch of faggots together. I mean, those dizzy queens, they'd never get them to do anything. Well, then in 1950, Bob, my best friend and former lover, was taking a course in um, the history of folk music that was given at the California Labor School. And for some reason, Harry Hay took over the course. I don't know what Harry's qualifications were. 
Harry showed Bob a thing that he, Harry, had written about an or a gay organization. And Bob brought this home and showed it to me, and Dale, who was Bob's lover at the time, and I said, my God, I could have written this myself. Uh, and uh, so uh, Bob said, well, you got to meet Harry. And I don't remember it this way, but it may be right. Harry said, I, I, got, I jumped out of my car, waving the document, saying I could have written this myself. Uh, so Harry's lover was Rudy Gernreich at the time. And so then Bob and Dale and Rudy and Harry and I started talking about this. And so we started having regular meetings. Now I read somewhere that those meetings, at those meetings you discussed what even the nature of homosexuality was and whether or not homosexuality constituted a, a minority group. Right. Uh, was that new thinking, that homosexuals would form a minority group? Well, we've been saying we should have an organization. And I and I kept saying, well, what is our what is our theory? What, yeah. having been a communist, you've got to work with the theory. What is, I mean, uh, what what is what is this, what is our basic principle that we are building on? And and this came from Harry, and I give him, despite our uh, many many disagreements, I will give him credit forever for saying. We are an oppressed cultural minority. And I said, that is it. That is exactly it. And that is the first time that I know that the, and, and nobody was buying an oppressed cultural minority. They didn't want to be a minority. They wanted to be like everybody else. Gay people didn't want to be an oppressed cultural minority. Why, we're just like everybody else except what we do in bed. Why did you disagree with that? Because it isn't true. Why not? I don't think or feel like a heterosexual. My life was not like a heterosexual. I had experiences, emotional experiences, that I could not have had as a heterosexual. I think my whole, my whole person, my whole being, my whole character, my whole life differed differs from heterosexuals not by what I do in bed because I don't do any of that in bed anymore and I never was as sexually active as as an awful lot of people so sex was a part of who you were but yeah but I uh, I believe there is a is a gay sensibility I would say, well, there is, a, there is a gay culture. People would say, gay culture? What do you mean? Do you actually think that we're more cultured than anybody else? I, no, I'm using culture in the sociological sense. A body of, of language, feelings, experiences, thinking, feeling that we share in common. People didn't buy what you said. They were horrified at the, the Constitutional Convention of the Mattachine In April 53. Society, I made a speech, and I don't remember what I said in, exactly, 
I was building up to a resounding climax, what I thought would be a, a resounding climax. And uh, I said, the time will come when we will, when we will march arm in arm, ten abreast, down Hollywood Boulevard, proclaiming our pride in our homosexuality. Well, I got some applause, but people were more, more in shock. <laughs> but it seemed to me uh, perfectly reasonable, and, and it still seems perfectly reasonable. What did they find shocking about your comment at that time? Well, in the first place, the only way we're ever going to get along is by being nice, quiet, polite little, uh, little boys that our maiden aunts would approve of. And uh, this is the only way we're going to get along in the world. We're not going to get along in the world by, by, uh, by going out and, and flaunting our, our homosexuality. Uh, we mustn't, we must, must keep it very, very, very quiet. And uh, there are, are people of goodwill uh, who will, who will uh, help us, but we cannot do anything naughty like like having uh, picket signs or parades, and why only communists would do things like that. And so they started uh, calling us communists, we the founders of the Mattachine, and although uh, some of us had been and others had been fellow travelers, uh, they uh, uh, began calling us communists. Not because they had even the faintest shred of evidence uh, for this accusation, but just because we were, we were saying such daring things. I mean, that's what communists do. They, 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 they create waves. They make scenes. They make people un unpleasant. They, uh, they don't balance their coffee cups on their knees politely. You retired from Mattachine essentially in 53 then. Well, we... Uh, we stepped aside anyway. See, we were, it was growing so fast uh, that it became obvious to me there was no way we could control it. And so I said the only thing to do is to open it to a democratic, fully democratic organization. And to this end, I proposed that we call a constitutional convention. So I wrote a constitution, which I think was a damn good one. It never occurred to us that, uh, uh, well, that anybody would, would come up with another constitution, would arrive with another cons constitution, or that they could, or if they did, that they could, uh, uh, could get anybody to vote for it because we thought ours was so good. So, but they came up with this half-baked piece of shit and it was obvious that they were going to pass it. And I, I, I said, well, we can't live with this Constitution. It's, it is un clearly unworkable. And uh, so we had a very, very quick meeting. And we agreed that it, that it was impossible. So we decided that we would resign. Then se several of us it, it, uh, uh, tried to work. We said, well, we'll try to work with, the, with some of the individual clubs. And so I was uh, with one club. And then for the second uh, convention, they, they couldn't solve anything at the first convention. That was convention. the April convention. Right. Yeah. 
So they were going to have another convention, and I was chosen as delegate. They wouldn't seat me. I said, how can you not seat me? I, I am sent here as a representative of my, of my club. And uh, no, because we, we don't seat communists. They, uh, you know, ridiculous. We founders of the Manichaean had given so much of ourselves, had dedicated ourselves so utterly to this. This was our lives. And suddenly it was gone, it was simply gone. And as a result, lovers began breaking up. Uh, people who had been the closest to friends were, at, uh, uh, were screaming and swearing at each other. As I think about it, you know, in retrospect, it was a, it was a terrible, terrible time. And I felt uh, the time I became absolutely suicidal because it was, uh, this was my life. I was, uh, uh, was prepared quite literally to devote my life to the Mattachine. And here this, this bright glory was, uh, was all gone. It, it turned to shit. After Chuck was kicked out of the Mattachine Society, he struggled for years with alcohol and depression. In 1962, his ex-boyfriend Bob Hull, who co-founded Mattachine, killed himself. That's when Chuck decided it was time to start over. So he moved to Iowa and somehow he landed a job as a high school teacher. At the same time, he got his master's degree in theater and later chaired the theater arts department at a junior college in Virginia, Minnesota. Chuck retired in 1982, moved back to LA, and founded the Celebration Theater. It's still in business and its mission hasn't changed creating an outlet for LGBTQ voices. When I interviewed Chuck, he told me that he'd been treated for prostate cancer. I had no idea how serious it was, and I don't think he did either. He died 16 months later. He was 73. I've got a few key people I'd like to thank for making this podcast possible. Thank you to our executive producer, Sarah Burningham, our audio engineer, Casey Holford, and our composer, Fritz Myers. Thank you also to our social media guru, Hannah Moak, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozier-Zell, and our head of research, Zachary Seltzer. We had production help from Jenna Weiss-Berman, who believed in this project before it was even a podcast. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Funding is provided by the Arcus Foundation, which is dedicated to the idea that people can live in harmony with one another and the natural world. Learn more about Arcus and its partners at arcusfoundation.org. And if you like what you've heard, Please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find all our episodes on our website at makinggayhistory.com. That's where you'll also find photos and really interesting background information on each of the people we feature. You've got to see Chuck's photo, by the way, because he looks more like a Leave it to Beaver Boy Scout than a former communist, whatever a former communist is supposed to look like. So long. Until next time. 